Well, good morning, Summit family. If you have your Bibles, please meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as we are continuing on uh, in our series, uh, walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. Pastor J.D. and I are preaching this weekend from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be talking uh, a lot today about marriage and singleness. Um, you know, just this is an incredibly complex yet beautiful passage, and God's going to say some wonderful things to us. Let's say a word of prayer, and we'll dive right in. God, thank you. Thank you, Father, for just opportunities to worship you. Thank you, Lord God, for um, this opportunity to just bless families who are launching out and just going, I want to steward the life and the lives of our children well to the glory of you. I pray that you'll give them great grace, these parents, Father. Now, Lord God, would you, would you speak to us through your word? Uh, speak to us as we continue in our journey through 1 Corinthians 7. Give me great grace, great truth, as I unfold the mysteries of your word. To that end, Lord God, that Jesus, you would be lifted up, that people would be inspired, no matter what season or situation they are in, to leverage that, not ultimately for their own benefit, but ultimately for your glory and the benefit of others. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. True story, in the fall of uh, 2017, there was a woman by the name of Anna Marquez. She was uh, vacationing in Paris, uh, was having such a great time uh, away from, um, from her home and on vacation. She actually decided to extend her vacation. Uh, she wanted to go to Copenhagen for a couple uh, of weeks, and so um, she got a ticket the day of her trip to, po- to Copenhagen, uh, popped up, and she makes her way to the airport. Uh, she checks in, and this is kind of when a perfect storm of true events happened. She gets her ticket, but they gave her the wrong ticket. They actually gave her a ticket that belonged to a woman named Marie, but Anna was just, I guess, so excited to get to Copenhagen that all she did was just kind of check where the gate was. She gets to the gate, and when it's time to board, uh, the gate agent uh, does sloppy work. She doesn't reconcile the name on the ticket with uh, the name on the passport. Anna gets on board, and she's dog-tired, and as soon as she uh, sits down, she drifts off into a coma like deep sleep so she doesn't hear the announcement of where they're going and bless her soul true story when Anna wakes up she's not uh, uh, in Copenhagen she's in Athens Greece here's Anna she had this desire to go to one destination but she ended up in a completely different destination uh, much to her discontent I I find this to be a fitting parable for so many people in our world and specifically in our culture here in America. So many people in our culture, if you were just kind of to press them or to maybe look at how they govern life and try to figure out what's, what's the end zone for you, what's the destination for you, so many people, the way they kind of function in life, you would say that the end zone for so many people is, is happiness, 
I remember some time ago talking to a friend of mine, an Asian who's the, um, the, the son of Asian immigrants, and we're, we're just kind of talking about what he just sees in the American experience, different uh, from the immigrant uh, experience, uh, being the son of um, uh, Asian immigrant parents. He says, look, man, if, I, I, don't, I don't mean any disrespect, but if you were to just go, man, what was my parents and many parents kind of one word aspirations for parenting, I, I would say that for many Asians, their aspirations in parenting parenting is success. We, we just want our kids to be successful. He says, from my vantage point, for most Americans, the, the one word kind of aspirations for their child is not necessarily success. We just want them to be happy. It's just kind of the destination. If, if, if I can just make sure you're happy, then I want to get there. But the problem is, Ultimate happiness cannot be found in this life, and so, so many people end up in a land called discontent. Sociologists say that in America, this kind of happiness push kind of really traces its roots back to post-World War II. In 1929, the stock market crashes, and um, that kind of begins 16 years of just struggle and suffering through the Great Depression, and then on into World War II. We've been on the struggle bus, and then right after World War II happens, uh, uh, kind of there was this thing in America's collective psyche in which we kind of said, you know, I've been struggling, uh, I've been kind of suffering, now is my time to get mine. So there's this kind of this consumer push. This is the birth of the suburbs and people leaving the cities in mass, uh, kind of this mass kind of migration towards home ownership. Fast forward a couple decades, and what do you see in the early 1990s? There's this thing that we now label helicopter parenting, where there's just this collective obsession where parents are micromanaging the lives of their kids, because at the end of the day, we, we want to just kind of architect and orchestrate their lives so that there is this happiness thing. In the last several decades, we've noticed an interesting phenomenon. The marriage rate has actually declined. Some sociologists tell us that the reason why the marriage rate has declined is that, um, you know, you've got a lot of children of divorce. Uh, divorces hovered somewhere uh, 40 to 50 percent, depending upon who you read. And so because of that, you got children of divorce who know that pain, and many of them are saying, why would I ever want to be a part of something that is broken? I mean, let me just ask you, if 40 to 50 percent of all airplanes crashed, would you fly? Chances are you, you wouldn't. And so now what we see is people wholesale are giving up on the institution of marriage. So we've got this rise in singleness, and we've got uh, the hookup culture and the rise of cohabitation. All, all of this is just kind of people going, you know what, I, I don't want to be a part of commitment. I don't want to be a part of that. And so, so let me just find happiness on my own terms. It's kind of the waters we swim in as Americans. But to be sure, this is not anything new on this stage of world history. This goes back to the dawn of time, and we actually see it with the Corinthians. When we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we noticed that Paul actually quotes from their culture. There was a popular saying that they had when it came to physical intimacy. It went like this. They said, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. What they were saying is, listen, it's just kind of a no-brainer. When you're hungry, you satisfy your body's cravings. And likewise, your body has a craving for physical intimacy. And so what do you do? You, you satisfy it. You scratch that itch. And you can do it on your own terms. This is, this is really 
the happiness ethic. It just is one of those things where, where whatever I want, what, whatever I crave, it's all about me. Now we come to our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and Paul is dealing with all these different seasons and stages and situations of life. He's talking to singleness, singles, and he's talking to, to marrieds, and he's talking to widows and widowers, and he's talking to those who are betrothed, what we might call engaged. And the problem that Paul has is he's talking to individuals who are looking to their season of life to bring them happiness and fulfillment. But people are looking to their singleness and the freedom and flexibility they have in that city. Man, if I can just get there, I'll be fulfilled. And so he's talking to people who are not happily married, who are thinking, if I can just get out of this marriage and, and become single, then I'll be happy and fulfilled. But then he's talking to singles who, in that society, your sense of security and success and identity was really wrapped into family. And so right in the Corinthian church, just kind of get this picture with me. You've got individuals who are not happily married who are saying, man, if I can just get to a stage of singleness, if I can just get out of this, that's where happiness is. But sitting across the aisle from them are singles just going, man, if I can just get married, then, man, I'll be happy and fulfilled. Now, I'm going to throw this one statement at you. If you get nothing else I say, get this. This is the whole point. If I could just sum up Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it would be this. Look at it with me. Changing your situation or season will not make you a happier, more fulfilled Christian. That is the punchline. Paul says, changing your situation or season will not make you a happier, more fulfilled Christian. Man, if I was preaching in a Pentecostal church, someone would have threw a shoe at me on that one. That is gospel truth. Changing your situation or season will not make you a happier, more fulfilled Christian. Some years ago, I was preparing uh, to walk a church I was leading at the time through just kind of understanding the biblical teaching of singleness, and uh, I was just kind of researching for that, and I came across a quote from Andy Stanley that just absolutely floored me. Andy Stanley, in just kind of giving sage advice and wisdom to, uh, to Christian singles, uh, he just kind of threw this zinger at the line. He, he said, um, be the one you're looking for is looking for. Give it to you again. Andy Stanley says, just talking to singles, be the one you're looking for is looking for. He was saying several things here. One, he was saying, don't project standards on other people that you're not willing to embrace and incarnate yourself. But what he was also saying is, don't wait until you get married to be the best version of you. Be that now. Be the one you're looking for is looking for. The whole idea, again, of what Andy Stanley is saying is he's nodding his head to the big idea of our passage, and it is, again, changing your situation or season will not make you a happier, more fulfilled Christian. Uh, let me just expand this. Some of you guys are, are, are working jobs in the marketplace right, right here in Durham, and you're absolutely killing it and crushing it. And maybe some of you have bought this lie that the, um, the varsity side of the kingdom are those who are in full-time vocational ministry. And so you're saying, man, if I can just get out of the marketplace and maybe go overseas, hit the mission field, that will bring me maximum fulfillment. And to be sure, some of you, God may be calling to do that. But I want you to understand now, 
just changing jobs is not going to give you maximum fulfillment. This is Paul's point. Changing your situation or season in life will not make you a better or more fulfilled Christian. So where does that come from? Where does that come from? Paul helps us to see this in verse 17. Will you look at it with me? Paul says, and this is the framing verse to our text, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. So Paul says, forget this nonsense. I mean, some of you are obsessing. My marriage is so bad, and I I need to get out of that. And listen, um, we want to walk with you. We've got a great counseling team here that that wants to give you the tools to, to, to navigate the issues in your marriage. Hear me say that. But some of you are actually, man, if I can just kind of get out of that, then I'll be free. Paul says, no, that's not true. Others of you are saying, if I could just be married, and you're obsessing over singleness, and Paul says, here's where we start. It's not changing your season or situation. Right where you're at, embrace God's assignment, God's calling on your life. What is his assignment or calling? Look at it with me. Three chapters later, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, here's your calling. So whether you eat or drink Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's your assignment. Don't need to complicate this at all. Paul says, if I could just maybe fiddle with the language, whether you are married or single, wherever you are, do it to the glory of God. Whether you're in a good marriage or a bad marriage, do all to the glory of God. Your assignment, God's call in your life, you don't have to pray about this. You don't have to fast about this. We were created to display the glory of God. I used to catechize my kids when they were, when they were little something. We'd driving them to school and did the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. I used to ask, what does it mean to glorify God? And Jaden, two, three years old, here's what it means. It means to make him bigger. Technically, we can't make him bigger, but the glory of God is like a telescope. What a telescope does is it brings faraway objects like planets and stars into clear view. Our lives are a telescope to bring the faraway God into clear view, regardless of my situation or season. Now, you know, if you've actually uh, walked into a store and shopped instead of going online, uh, when you walk into a store and shop, in most retail stores, they have something that sophisticated folks called mannequins that unsophisticated folks like myself call dummies. Now, the purpose of the dummy isn't the dummy. The purpose of the dummy is to display the glory of the store. That dummy is going to wear the product, the apparel, the clothing of the store, so much so that those dummies are placed right at the front of the store so that walking by, you would see the glory of the store displayed on that dummy, and you walk in and make a purchase. Paul is saying, we nothing but dummies. At the end of the day, we exist to display the glory of God. That's your assignment. That's your assignment. So in the balance of our time together, I just want to explore with you what happens. What happens when no matter what season I am, no matter what situation I'm in, no matter where I'm at, what happens when I embrace God's assignment to display my glory, three things happen. The first thing Paul says is that those around us are bettered. 
He wants us to understand that receiving God's assignment makes others around me better. Look at how he begins in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, let let you know that this is kind of Paul's moment where it's ask Pastor Paul. He's fielding questions that the Corinthians have. He says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, if you stop right there, uh, the average Jewish man in the congregation would be nodding his head saying, that's right. But keep reading, because what Paul now says is shocking to the culture of his day. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What happens within a marriage where I, I embrace God's assignment for his glory, others are bettered, and let me just specifically hone in on what the other's nature is, and specifically one of the others who benefit are women. What Paul says is scandalous in that culture. Paul is writing to a multi-ethnic church. Uh, Acts chapter 18 tells us that he reasons with both Jews and Gentiles. It's a multi-ethnic church, but those who would be hearing this letter, some of them are actually Jewish men. Now, if you understand anything about the culture of the day, it's a very patriarchal culture in which Jewish men held all the cards. A Jewish man could divorce his wife for any and every reason. This is not the way that God intended it. It's not the way that God designed it. What does Paul do in that patriarchal culture? He turns it upside uh, on its head, and he says, I want you to understand something. When it comes to physical intimacy within the marriage covenant, there there should be mutual submission. So what does he do? He is pulling the rug out, listen to me, from abuse. The definition of abuse is one-way authority, one-way submission. One person has all the cards, one person has the authority, and the other person just sits back, takes it, receives it. Paul paints a picture not of one-way authority, but of mutual authority. Now, to be clear, I'm a complementarian. If you want to know more about that, I'd love to field your emails at uh, jasondouglas at summitchurch.com. I'd love to entertain that with you. But here's the idea here. He's talking about mutual submission, mutual authority within the marriage covenant. The wife has authority over the husband's body. My wife will be here at the next service, and she needs to hear that message. You have authority, sweetheart, over my body. It is mutual submission, mutual authority. In that kind of a framework, both people are better, specifically women. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says something scandalous. Ephesians 5, uh, around about verse 25, he says, Listen, husbands, I want you to love your wives as Christ loved the church. He is comparing the marriage covenant to the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the ways that happens is through the husband's sacrificial other's orientation towards his wife, she is bettered. 
He goes on to say that there is coming a day, pressing the analogy in Ephesians 5, where God is going to present us, excuse me, Christ is going to present us, his bride, to God, and we will be spotless, without sin. That's not true now. We don't teach sinless perfection here, although it is a true statement. The, the, the process of sanctification means that the more I submit to the leadership of Christ, the less I should sin. So that's not true now, but there's coming a day, glorification. I will be spotless. I will be completely perfect. I will be bettered. Why? Because of the leadership of Christ in my life. That is the analogy he uses for the servant leadership role of husbands in the, in the home. Every wife should be able to look through the rearview mirror of her journey with her husband and say, I am a better woman because of your sacrificial Christ-like servant leadership in my life. What happens when I embrace God's assignment to glorify God, especially within the covenant of marriage? Both parties are better, but specifically in a countercultural way, wives are bettered. But not only are wives bettered, but the unsaved are bettered. Look at what he says in verse 12. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy, made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Wow. Now, is Paul encouraging missionary dating? He is not. The idea of missionary dating is, you know, you get uh, two individuals, one saved, the other not saved, and, well, you know, I can just kind of uh, end up getting married to them, and, and, and they'll change after marriage. That never really happens. Paul isn't encouraging that. What he's dealing with is a very real cultural phenomenon. You have to remember that Christianity, when Paul writes, is a new thing. It's a first-generation thing. And so what was really common is, is that people are hearing the gospel, married couples are hearing the gospel, one responds and the other does not, which means you have a saved believer and an unsaved individual within the context of marriage, and now he's getting questions just going, man, we are on two different tracks. This thing is not going well. What do we do, Paul? Paul says, I want you to hang in there. God can use your Christian witness to actually lead to the salvation of your spouse. This is exactly what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3. Look at it with me. Peter said, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. To be sure, he is not saying... I want you to marry, to say I do, to enter into covenant with an unbeliever. He is talking to already married individuals in which one is a believer after marriage and one is not. There's a couple, very famous couple, that really uh, proves this point, Lee and Leslie Strobel. Lee and Leslie Strobel were not believers when they got married. In fact, Lee would describe himself as an atheist. One day, a couple years into the marriage, Leslie comes home and she just kind of announces, listen, I've, something's happened to me. I've, I've, uh, I've um, submitted myself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm a follower of Jesus. Lee would say, in hindsight, I was not pleased by that at all. I, I never wanted to be married to what he called a holy roller. So Lee Strobel says, I'll fix this. 
he's an investigative journalist, and he decides, um, I'm going to do some digging, and I will discredit the person and work of Jesus Christ, whom you say you are serving. For the next two years, he researches Jesus Christ. And in the process of those two years, two things happen to him. One, the very one he thought to discredit and disprove, he ends up getting saved by. He becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. But two, he writes an international bestseller in which he was trying to disprove who Christ was, but ends up validating who he is called The Case for Christ. So many people have come to faith through Lee's investigative journalism, The Case for Christ. Let me ask you, what would have happened if Leslie said, you know what, I'm now a follower of Jesus Christ, this ain't going to work, I'm out. What would have happened if she would have just made it about herself? This ain't going to work, I'm not going to be happy, I'm not going to be fulfilled, I am out. Friends, I want you to understand In your marriage, God is after way more than your happiness. He is after you and your spouse's holiness. And when you live to the glory of God, when you embrace that assignment, God can use that as a powerful instrument to better those around you. Thirdly, not only does it better women and not only does it better married individuals, it also betters singles. Listen to what he says in verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. i got to be careful here. He, he is not picturing or posturing marriage as that old ball and chain, and man, you're just kind of locked down and tied down and miserable. That's not what he's doing. He's, he's doing the opposite. He's trying to paint a, a, a compelling picture of, of freedom and flexibility to those who are unmarried. So Paul is saying, don't just sit around and stew over what you don't have and, and obsess over the fact that you're not married. You are, you are free. You are flexible to get after the things of the Lord right now in, in ways you could never have imagined. The truth of the matter is I, I can't do what I want to do in some sense. I just can't pop up and go, I'm going to fly here or fly there. No, I'm, I'm yoked to another individual. There's, there's commitments that I have as a married man and, and as a father that, that, that I joyfully embrace. I'm not as free and flexible as I was when I was a single person. And that's why I just, I just want to encourage you. You know, when I hear singles just say, man, I'm just so busy. Like, I don't I don't want to look down on that. There's a lot of truth in that, but I want you to understand, as busy as you may be, it's not like you're going to get to a place where life is probably going to slow down. Life is going to speed up and speed up and speed up. So leverage the freedom and the flexibility you have for the glory of God. This is a beautifully complicated and complex passage. Paul says there's an assignment on your life, and when I embrace that assignment, others around me are bettered, but, but what else happens? It, it's, it's a shame, but in the church of Jesus Christ, it's almost as if we kind of pit marriage and singleness against each other. The, the subtle, at times not so subtle, uh, point we convey is um, marriage is varsity and singleness is JV. 
The way I even hear uh, churches just teach on singleness, and a lot of the books that I've read on singleness is how to prepare yourself for a change in season or situation instead of fully embracing where you are now. It's interesting to me that as Paul is making his way through this text, and as he's talking a lot about marriage and singleness, he says something interesting in verse 24. Look at it with me. Paul says, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. What he is calling us to is profound contentment. Now, reading the white spaces of our text, I just kind of have this vision of... um, People coming to Paul just going, hey, hey, Paul, uh, I, I'm single, and what, what do you think about being single? And I just kind of see him going, eh. Hey, Paul, I'm, I'm, I'm married. The mar- you know, what, what do you think about this whole marriage thing? I just hear, kind of feel Paul going, eh. eh. It, it's not that they're not important, but there is a profound contentment that Paul has. You, you know, one of the great debates in theological circles was, was Paul married or was he single? Great debate. Books have been written about it. But I think that's the whole point. Paul was so obsessed with the glory of God and so committed to where he was that we don't even know his situation or season. Paul says, listen, when you embrace God's assignment on your life and you're all out to display the glory of God, what comes with that? Not only are those around you bettered, but it brings me contentment. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He says, I, I, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. The idea of the Greek word contentment, it means a redemptive self-sufficiency. What does that mean? Redemptive self-sufficiency, that word contentment, it means a refusal to look to my circumstances to bring me definition and meaning. The content person absolutely refuses to look to their circumstances to bring them definition or meaning. Paul says, I I know how to get get along with little. I know how to get along with much. In, in, In all situations, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And please don't disconnect this popular voice verse from its context. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That verse is in the context of contentment. Christ is the one, not my hopes of being married. Christ is the one, not the behavior of my spouse, who brings me contentment. Is that true of you, friends? I'll let you in a little secret. I am, you know, I I fly a lot, but when it comes to small planes, I get really claustrophobic. I had to fly to South Dakota the other week. And let's just say 757s don't fly into South Dakota. <laughs> and uh, I just kind of get on this plane, man, and I'm kind of right in the middle and just kind of scrunched up, man. And I just, you know, I'm like, oh. And so I just start to obsess over just this idea of feeling trapped and whole thing. Well, the only way I can make it is to distract myself. So I take out my iPad and uh, watch a, a great Nicolas Cage film and 
Uh, have have y'all heard of Nicolas Cage around here? Uh, so I just watched some kind of a film. I, I just need to be distracted because if I don't distract myself with something else, I will obsess over where I'm at and I won't get to where I need to go. Hear me. You want to be disappointed in singleness? Obsess over singleness. You want to be disappointed over a less than ideal marriage? Obsess over everything wrong that's in your marriage. But you want to leverage your singleness? You want to leverage your marriage to the glory of God? Get distracted by the glory of God. That's what he's saying. Let's land the plane on this one. I'm embracing my assignment. I'm embracing God's call on my life. That call is the glory of God. Changing my situation, changing my season, it is a lie from the pit of hell. Won't make me a happier, more fulfilled Christian, but only tapping into God's purposes for my life, which is to glorify him and enjoy him forever. That's why I'm here. When that happens, others around me are bettered, and that brings me a profound sense of contentment. But finally, receiving God's assignment makes me selfless. Receiving God's assignment makes me, makes me selfless. I just want you to kind of look at the thread that is woven throughout. Paul begins by saying, listen, if you want to maximize physical intimacy in your marriage, don't make it about you. God has designed physical intimacy in marriage to where when you make it about the other person, that brings you maximum fulfillment. Now, there's some youngins in here, so I won't chase that any more than that. Okay? He, he goes on by saying, listen, if you want to maximize singleness, don't make singleness ultimately about your happiness. Live on mission for the glory of God. If you want to maximize marriage, don't make it about you. Every divorce is because someone was selfish. He says the key to this whole thing is selflessness. This is the last thing I'll put before you. Look at it with me on the screen. What he's saying here is that life's greatest satisfactions are tied to life's greatest sacrifices. And the way of sacrifice is the way of selflessness. Life's greatest satisfactions are tied to life's greatest sacrifices. And the way of sacrifice is the way of selflessness. It's almost as if Paul is saying, Corinthians, you're coming at this the wrong way. I appreciate your questions, but your questions, the punchline is, how can you be more fulfilled? When actually, it's counterintuitive, if you want fulfillment, fulfill him. Fulfill others. That's how this thing works. So as you round third and head for home, let me just kind of expand this out a couple different ways. Some of you are, um, are, are retired. My, my dad, he, he hates the word retirement. He calls it realignment. Um, and I think that's a good concept. Some of you are retired, man. You've worked hard. You've, you've, you've saved. And, man, you're committed to local church. But maybe you also got the mountain house, beach house or whatever. And, man, this is you're in the winter years of your life and so on and so forth. And, but the reason why you're still alive isn't to shuffleboard your way into the kingdom of heaven. 
God still wants you to be about his glory and mission here on earth. So what's one of the ways I could be selfless with that? Matt Love is uh, overseeing our, uh, our, our residency church planters uh, kind of program here at the church. And we have this vision of planting a thousand churches in our generation. Just this year, we're going to send out about nine or ten church plants. And, and I can just tell you, as one who's planted a church, if you were to ask me, what's one of the things that I just felt like just jump-started us and gave us immediate street cred? It's when we had an older couple just say, you know what, we're just going to show up and surf. We're, we're, we're going we're to venture out from the known into the unknown. Very selfless way. We, we're just going to give our lives to serving this church and helping it get on its feet. And I can just still see them there on Sunday mornings at, uh, uh, at the Guitar Center there in Memphis setting up. And I can tell you, there was no one more fulfilled than this older retired couple who just kind of locked arms with us. So maybe... Maybe God is saying to some of you, praise God for your, for your aspirations to just kind of kick back and chill, but I got more for you. What about venturing out with one of our church plants? Corey and I, uh, we've been kind of um, dealing with this in our own, in our own home. We've got um, a 20-year-old, an 18-year-old, and 16-year-old, and our 20-year-old is in Arizona. Our 18-year-old is in Los Angeles, um, our 16-year-old, uh, he'll be out of the house uh, uh, in a year and a half. Don't know where he's going. He's just going out. Um, so he's going to be leaving us here pretty soon, uh, halfway through his junior year. We're on the precipice of empty nest. Um, we, we sold our home in the, in the most expensive economy in the country, the Bay Area. And uh, we moved here, which was pretty cheap, about a year and a half ago. That's changed. Um, and so as we just began talking about, you know, what, what kind of house do we want to get and what does that look like? And, you know, we just, we just started wrestling with and just kind of looking through just our philosophy of having a home and the time in which we were most fulfilled was when we, when we had a home uh, in Memphis and we would have um, our own interns and residents live with us. Um, I just preached at one of their church plants, their seven-year anniversary, and every time I preached there, he's in Chicago killing it. Uh, he just kind of with tears in his eyes says, man, when I, when I was struggling to raise support, um, this guy let us stay in his home. We have an intern and apprenticeship program here. Uh, we started out kind of small a couple years ago with 12 interns and apprentices. This year we've got 38. Next year we're looking at upwards of 50. Uh, many of them um, raise money. Uh, they raise support. Um, and I just, I just got to tell you, if you want to bless someone, one of these interns, apprentices, Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, not to leverage for your own good, but, but maybe God wants you to share that with some of our interns and apprentices. These are just a few examples of leveraging the season I am in my own life and saying, God, can you get maximum glory? As we close, there's a there's a pretty popular story if you've been around the scriptures for a while. It's uh, John chapter 4. story of Jesus' encounter with a woman at the well. As Jesus sits down with this woman at the well, it's just clear she's gone from relationship to relationship to relationship. In fact, Jesus says, hey, I, I know a little bit about you. You've, you've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. Six men. In a patriarchal society like hers, in all probability, what happened was she was married and that man just kind of kicked her to the curb, left her vulnerable. That was typical, heartbreakingly typical. 
But what's not typical is the fact that she keeps going back to man after man after man after man. She's not a picture of contentment. She's a picture of discontent. Jesus gets at this. He touches on her discontent and he says, you'll never be satisfied until you taste of the living water. That living water is him. What's interesting, again, six men, five husbands, the one she's with now, not her husband, she takes Jesus up on that offer, which makes Jesus the seventh man, the number of completion, the number of satisfaction, the number of fulfillment. Listen to me, friends. You will never be fulfilled in your singleness, in your marriage, in your work, in your retirement, until you have the seventh man, Jesus, as the epicenter of your life. Jesus lived the most fulfilled life there ever was. He died at 33, homeless, broke, single, and supremely fulfilled. That's Jesus. And that is the one we offer. So, Father, I thank you. We embrace your call to live for your glory. So that whatever we do, Paul says, whether we eat or drink, whether we're married, single, widowed, widower, divorced, whatever situation we are in, we we pledge to live for your glory. And when we get outside of ourselves and we live for your glory, your fulfillment, that's where we will experience fulfillment in our own lives. Now, Lord God, would you show us how that translates into our own lives? And so I send you out from this place, back to your situation or season, send you out from this place, back to wherever you may be, a college student, working in the marketplace, full-time, at home, Whatever you may do, may we do it all for the glory of God. Summit family, you are sent. God bless you. See you next week.